Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 12th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. You uh, spent uh, a little time this week in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, uh, doing a reading of your new play, Musicals Without Music. How did it go? Gee, I think very well. Um, I would say that the audience uh, really responded tremendously well, and I was very pleased about that. I didn't expect um, that there even would be an audience, to be frank. I didn't know what to expect. But my, um, and you know, I make it sound like you know the place was packed. Uh, it, what's really interesting about this Millbrook Playhouse, which is in Mill Hall, Pennsylvania, about three and a half hours away from the city, uh, is that they've been around for a long time. This was the 54th um, year that they've been doing it so uh that's that's pretty impressive you know for a place that used to be a barn literally and um it's really quite nice to see that uh, such a place can really uh continue to go because we've certainly seen a lot of barns that have been repurposed into barns you know so so how wonderful that uh this is a case where uh, <laughs> they just did so well, um, and um, they've they've had a season where they've been pretty ambitious, really, because not only have they done um, such expected f- uh, fair as Sister Act, but also um, an act of God, which they were a little concerned about, because um, after all, uh, this is a conservative part of the country. I saw a lot of Trump-Pence signs while I was driving out there, so uh, it was really quite nice to see that um, people did come out for Act of God, and as I was told, um, there was no um, chaos involved with it. They they didn't get any complaints whatsoever, so that was kind of nice. So it's very nice that the the people obviously take pride in their playhouse. And I, w- I was just so amazed, really, to think about the fact that um, – it, it, they actually advertise that they're next to the Walmart. I mean, you know, not quite, but I mean, close enough. You know, so I mean, really, it's just great that, uh, that there are enough people to come out and see it. So anyway, a terrific, terrific uh, group of people out there uh, doing a wonderful job. Um, and uh, they're actually doing I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change at the moment. And that's um, I was very fortunate that Rob Schneider, uh, who directed 
um, I Love You Perfect Now change out there, was gracious enough to get his cast, which was tremendous, um, to do my show. And um, it, it's a four-person show, uh, needless to say. You know that about I Love You Perfect Now change. But more to the point... Um, my show was a four-person show, too, so um, as a result, there was uh, <laughs> a nice fit there. So my hat is off to Katrina Dean, David B. Friedman, Alex Frost, that's a, a woman, um, and Aaron Gooden, who um, really threw themselves into it, uh, playing all the characters that are in the show. This is a show that tells you what happens to characters in musicals after the curtain came down. So uh, they play various people from... Um, uh, Maria and West Side Story to Peter Pan um, to Annie uh, to Tevia and all this um, and Billy Bigelow, so it, it's it's all about that. And I'm telling you, um, I'm happy to say the laughs were pretty plentiful. And of course, the moment uh, that I got back in town, I started rewriting and cutting. It's always about cutting, isn't it? You know, it's always about making it shorter. So that's what I've been doing this week, in addition to seeing some shows, which we will talk about. So the uh, the playhouse there, the Millbrook Playhouse in Mill Hall, Pennsylvania, is about 40 minutes away from Penn State University, State College, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I've actually uh, I've actually been there a couple of times. It's really nice, and they have they seem to be into this whole uh, development, not not just doing the tried the and truth, true, yes, not the tried right. and true guides and dolls uh, type of things, sure. but um, they have a whole uh, yearly thing dedicated to new play readings. And so uh, check it out. Check out the Millbrook Playhouse if you can. And uh, like I said, it's right next to the Walmart. So. Ah. <laughs> All right. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And I, I have to say, I didn't do anything as creative as Peter, uh, but I went to Delmonico's. Ooh, ah, some good did you see there. the shows? And there were no shows. I was very disappointed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I looked. I looked up the history. It's a. It's quite a fascinating and long history. And I'm not sure if there were ever shows there. It might just be a, uh, a right. little little rhyme that uh, sure, Jerry sure. Herman thought. Well, I've got to put this in regardless right. of what's true. <laughs> but I, uh, and don't forget that was also one of the songs he wrote over that first weekend um, when David Merrick said, "Okay, you know, I'll, I'll give you a tryout. Come back on Monday." And he had to write four songs in a hurry. And while that was a song that he had already done called The Spirit of the Chase is What It's All About, which scans perfectly with put on your Sunday clothes when you feel down and out, uh, the fact remains that uh, he did have to do it in a hurry. So it's very possible there were no shows at Delmonico's and he was just using that as a rhyme. Maybe one of our historians who are listening can tell us if indeed there were shows at Delmonico's. Uh, Of course, we could Google. But anyway, um, good point, Michael. Well, I just what uh, I didn't have the lobster Newberg because I'd had it last time mm. and I didn't have the baked Alaska because I'd had it last time I explored the menu a little further <laughs> but it's uh, it's you know it's just great that a place like that still exists and I love to go to places that are sung about in musicals <laughs> <laughs> and you know since we're in New York City we don't often don't have to travel anywhere near as far as people from Omaha, you know. (laughs) This is true. Okay, in the review section, 
uh, last night. I got a chance to see Twelfth Night. Uh, Michael, you saw it as well. When did you see it? I saw it on, uh, uh, when did I see it? On Thursday? Thursday. And Peter, you're seeing it tonight, Sunday evening, right? Yes, uh, weather permitting. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that, uh, you know, next week. Uh, Weather permitting, you know, the the public website is uh, very adamant about they Mm. hardly ever cancel. And they do do play through, uh, as I found out last night, rain, uh, although it was off and on and not tremendously heavy, but they do Mm -hmm. play through rain. Uh, this is August in New York, and if they cancel cause a little bit of rain, we'd have a problem. You know, they'd never get on. Perhaps, but I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping if the rain's got to fall, let it fall on Monday because I'm going tonight. So uh, the public theater uh, brings back Twelfth Night um, as part of a public works project. It's an initiative that invites the communities across New York to uh, create uh, new works. Um, and so the public uh, theater has partnered with Public Works, and this uh, this show I think was done last year as well. But um, with um, Shana Taub uh, not only starring in it, but having written the music and lyrics with it, uh, Oscar Yuskis directed it. Uh, Kwame K- uh, Kwe Arma, Kwame K Arma. Uh, uh, I know, it's hard. Yeah, um, has also co-directed it. He's the artistic director of the uh, London's Young Vic, and they are bringing it to London as well. Some fo- some friends of mine that are, uh, have already gotten tickets to see it in London are excited about it. So uh, I saw it last night, and I took my 10-year-old daughter with me, and we uh-huh. both had a huge ball. A lot, uh-huh. uh, a lot of fun. The music is really wonderful. Wonderful, and uh, I hope that uh, that this becomes a cast recording. Um, there were some really tremendous standouts in this uh, in this cast. Uh, aside from uh, Shana Tab, who we just talked about, we mm. also uh, we also have uh, Shula Hensley's in there, Nikki M. James. Um, uh, Andrew Kober, who's also a podcaster, uh, did a tremendous job as well. <laughs> uh, and then they had they have uh, alternate ensembles, a red ensemble and a blue ensemble. I'm unsure of who I saw last night. I didn't see any denotation of which ensemble that we saw, but uh, about 50-some-odd people filling the stage, um, young and old, uh, uh, becoming the people of Illyria. Uh, so... I thought that what was wonderful about this was there there are tremendous cuts in it. It's it's a very narrowed and simplified version and uh, version of the show with wonderful music and good choreography. Uh but it made um Shakespeare uh understandable to a 10-year-old. My daughter really was on top of it and loved this show uh, as did I. So I really encourage it's only playing, you know, their official opening date is very late. They do Mm. four or five weeks of previews and then a week or two of opening. So it closes August 19th. And if you can get to the park and see it, uh, definitely do that. So, Michael, what did you think about it? I would agree with every word you said. I thought it was completely delightful. It's funny. it, It started, the show started and with all this wonderful high energy and this great music. And at some point um, there was 
Viola washed up on the shore and all these things were happening really quickly and turned and I turned to my theater companion and said I think they've just done the first third of the play in about 10 minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh but um you know, when you think about it, 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 that's fine to just kind of uh, make the first part seem really, really energetic and frenetic and, and just really kind of set the plot in in very, very fast forward motion. Uh, because after that, I thought the storytelling became uh, very nicely paced and extremely clear. And the character relationships were all eminently clear that the uh, people who were supposed to have chemistry definitely did. Um, I, it's hard to single out people, but um, Nanya Akuki Goodrich as Olivia, certainly Ado Blankson Wood as Orsino, and uh, Mickey M. James was just wonderful as Viola, um, uh, especially in her, she was so cute in her male drag uh, that you kind of wanted her to stay in it <laughs> and you think oh well, what does that mean <laughs> um and shula hensley is always delightful to have on stage uh let's see yeah i, I agree and andrew cobra did a wonderful malvolio this production does not solve the malvolio problem no uh, meaning that uh for the cast uh, the well the rest of the people in the play uh, treat him horrifically only because he's a little pompous and you know vain and the the punishment way outweighs the crime and I think the audience feels very bad for um, for Malvolio what but they he- did do on this in this case is what you maybe were about to say is he's he's sort of redeemed for the curtain call. So, um, so they did make that improvement. So I have to hand that to them. Um, How about yeah. that song that he's got? Isn't that song that Andrew's got uh, just wonderful? Oh yes, but I, uh, I mean, I loved all of the songs. Yeah. I oh, thought yeah. they just absolutely the right spirit for. We've discussed before. This is not the first musical version of. Uh. Uh-huh. Of Twelfth Night, um, there was a famous one called "Your Own Thing," that was off Broadway in uh, 1968, and I don't know that show to be honest with you. I'll admit it, but there was one that I really liked, even though it was a big flop, and it was called "Play On," and it used um, music, uh, the songs of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn and people like that, and I, and obviously in that case it was a. Uh, not an original score. They they took the famous songs and they shoved them into the plot of Twelfth Night in a modern day setting in uh, a sort of modern day setting in New York City. Um, and I thought it worked brilliantly. And I would love to see that show done again. I don't know what what happened, what went wrong. Maybe we will see it again someday. But in the meantime, you have this utterly delightful version. Uh, conceived by Kwame K. Arman and Shana Taub, who also plays Festi, as James mentioned. Music and lyrics by Shana Taub, uh, by the way, who also has been named to be writing lyrics only to Elton John's music for the upcoming musical of The Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. So she is a busy lady. Uh, choreography by Lauren Lataro, also very busy. And co-directed by Oscar Eustace and Kwame uh, Quay Arman. So I think um, I would not be at all surprised if there's not a future life 
for this show. Um, so I, I think you can, if you want to bet on that, I think you might want to take that bet. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was just about to say, and I'm glad you brought it up, is that uh, I hope that this, you know, isn't one of those things that, oh, this is really good and we never see it again. Uh, this is too good to be just done in a limited run. I'm not sure it really has a commercial potential to it, but I hope that it it does uh, show up uh, other places. Uh, I hope that it gets done at other Shakespeare festivals and other uh, large summer outdoor theaters. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Future. You know, and uh, Shana Tobb, as you mentioned, she's very busy. We saw her in uh, Off-Broadway in Natasha Pierre, and we saw her in Hadestown, uh, Emma Goldman in Ragtime and Ellis concert, uh, that one-night concert that happened last year. So uh, as well as having, you know, all of her writing duties, uh, perhaps uh, the discussion of Hadestown coming back to New York, we wonder if she'll be in that. So... That is uh, Twelfth Night Over at the Park, and uh, as I mentioned, it's only playing for a couple of more weeks uh, through August 19th, so we have one week left, and so check that out. I uh, saw it, as it turned out, it was actually last Wednesday that I saw it, and, and it was threatening all day, but we got no rain. And then last night I heard that five or six friends of mine were going, and I'm like, oh, damn, but I'm glad that it held out for you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, we'll stick with a little uh, Shakespeare sort of section here. And uh, <laughs> Peter, you went over to HB Studios to see War of the Roses, which is a combination of uh, Shakespearean plays. So tell us about this. Yeah, uh, it's it's mostly Henry the Sixth Part Three, and uh, more to the point, I expected, given that it was uh, advertised as a combination of Henry the Sixth Part Three and Richard the Third, that indeed um, we were going to see a good deal of um, each of the plays. Didn't turn out to be that way at all. I mean, it was amazing to me that in no time we were already in that fabulous scene in Henry the Sixth Part Three where. Queen Margaret humiliates humiliates a pretender to the throne. Um, it's it's a fun. This is one of Shakespeare's first plays, and if they were giving out prizes in those days, believe me, he would have been named most promising playwright for this scene alone. So, um, so, so if you're expecting a lot of Henry the Sixth, no, it's not going to happen. You're really going to get Richard the Third, and uh, what you're going to get in Richard the Third is Matt de Rogatis, who I think is very effective in the part. But the one I really want to mention is Joanne Lester, who um, comes in late in the play. And um, she is the person who uh, is um, has to deal with uh, Richard, who really feels that even though um, he has killed people near and dear to her, that um, she should really play ball with him. And the scene that she has with him is so effective when she is telling him off. And uh, he just doesn't understand his own way of looking at things is that I am offering your daughter the chance to be queen. Never mind that I killed the man who could have been king. I mean, you're still going to get the throne, aren't you? Um, it's That's the way it's going to work out. What's the problem? And um, the way she tries to get through him is really a very impressive scene. This was um, mostly put together by Austin Pendleton, 
who does appear as Henry VI. Um, so therefore, you think you're not going to see him after the first scene. He does come back uh, for a little bit. But I really think this is a very effective production. Very bare bones. No set to speak of. No costume to speak of. Just the language. And I'm not the type of person who calls scenery and costumes trappings. I hate that. There's nothing wrong with scenery. There's nothing wrong with uh, costumes. They're not trappings. They're good things to have. Uh, uh, however, um, they're not hundred percent necessary. Um, but I just hate when they're denigrated as trappings. So, um, the language comes through and the acting is so wonderful that, um, you have one week to go. It's at the small HB studios on bank street, uh, tiny space, not many seats. I hope they're all filled. They deserve to be. All right. So, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. We have, um, War of the Roses, Henry and Richard with, uh, directed by Alston Pendleton. And it's got a clever little website here. So check that out. Um, Michael, you saw what is turning out to be the hot new ticket of the summer. It's uh, Be More Chill, um, which has been extended uh, for one week at Signature and sold out immediately. So you can't get tickets. You'll have to see it at its next incarnation, which is being rumored. So tell us, Michael, should we be seeing Be More Chill? Sounds like, uh, yeah, it sounds like you can't get tickets, and uh, even if you tried. Um, yeah. So, it, this is a very fascinating piece, as I'm sure many of our listeners know the the background. Uh, it was first uh, performed. The world premiere production was. 2015 at the Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. And uh, so that was done. And I guess, you know, it was got some decent reviews, mixed, and maybe some mixed reviews. But the recording was made, and somehow this recording went insanely viral. And uh, let's see, what's the... Uh, uh, before arriving in New York, Be More Chill has already amassed an unprecedented following across various online platforms with millions of fans from Brazil to Japan to New Jersey sharing, uh. f- sharing fan art, stream- streaming the album over 150 million streams to date and talking about the show in 2017 tumblr ranked be more chill as the number two most talked about musical on their platform following hamilton so uh there wasn't much chance that this wasn't going to come to at least off broadway maybe broadway and it's um it's definitely a fan musical um one of those uh not not unlike uh, harry potter which isn't a musical per se but um these musicals that bring in um you know it's like a club meeting <laughs> uh, you know an appreciation society meeting there are all these rabid fans of um these properties in this case uh this musical based on a book uh uh a, a cult sensation novel by Ned Vizzini. Uh, and then we have the Harry Potter heads and all those people. And it, it can sometimes be disconcerting, uh, speaking for myself, if you go to see a show like that and you are not one of those rabid fans and you feel like you're already left out because there's all this screaming and, and applauding and 
uh, cheering at places uh, and plot points that you're not necessarily getting because you don't know the the background. Um, I think the best shows are those which can really function as well for the neophytes as the people who are the the hardcore. Um, and this is this is not. Uh, this is somewhere in between there, I would say. Uh, I think that um, I, I am a very big fan of Joe Iconis, although I have had limited experience to his work before this. He wrote a show that I really, really liked called Blood Song of Love. I thought that was absolutely delightful. Um, but here uh, he uh, – for example, the, the, I wanted to make this point. There is a song in Act 2 called The Smartphone Hour. And then in parentheses, rich set of fire. So um, you can probably guess if you look at this uh, that it's something of a parody of the telephone hour from Bye Bye Birdie, um, just updated, you know, uh, as much as could possibly be to, you know, events that could have happened last week. And I think that actually that's a nice encapsulation of Joe Iconis himself. He, I think he's someone who has a very huge knowledge and a very healthy respect for traditional Broadway musical song forms and structure. Uh, but he also is able to take that and then, um, uh, transmute it through his own uh, sensibilities and his own talents to come up with some really, really terrific uh, songs for these uh, high school characters that they're just so energetic. They do. There, a lot of them are very melodic. I'm happy to say, um, little or no rap uh, with no melody. Um, he is uh, – many, many people in the, in the industry are very excited about Joe Iconis, and I can understand why. Uh, I, I think um, this may be his breakout piece. Well, it will be inter interesting, really, really interesting to see what future life or life's lives it has. And uh, I'm sure that maybe uh, Peter and James have thoughts on that. I don't have any yet because I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, that's right. You will have thoughts on that. All right. Um, so yesterday on Broadway Radio, Jenna Tessa Fox had an interview with Joe Iconis, and we, they talked about the telephone hour uh, comparison as well. Uh, and Joe uh, straight up said absolutely that it. Uh, he talked about his, uh, you know, that this was directly an homage to the telephone hour and bye bye birdie and and the the different history and depths of of building his shows upon the other uh properties that have come before him uh it's a great interview it's about 30 minutes or so a lot of fun and he talks about um his other it's very interesting he talked about three other shows Love and yeah. Hate Nation, the unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musical, and Broadway Bounty Hunter. Now, mm. what was interesting to me beyond, you know, that he's a writer that just keeps on writing, is that these are three uh, shows that were commissioned by three different places. Love and Hate Nation was commissioned by Penn State. The unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musicals commissioned by La Jolla Playhouse and the Broadway Bounty Hunters was commissioned by Barrington Stage Company. So he certainly is not putting all his eggs in one basket. Uh, and he is just going out and writing, 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 similar to 
in my take, what Roger Hammerstein did, they just kept on writing and writing and writing mm-hmm. as much as they could. Mm. So, uh, very interesting. And I'm going to see Be More Chill at the in the middle of to the end of September. We'll be back and talk about that. But certainly, I'm sure this is not the last time that we've heard about this property. No. So, uh, Peter, you saw Neurosis the Musical at DR2. So tell us about Neurosis. Yeah, um, this is uh, a new musical, an original musical, a relationship musical. And uh, essentially the story is about whether or not uh, we will find Abby, uh, who's reasonably successful, uh, have a relationship with Frank, who's not successful. He wants to be a magician. It's not really working out. Um, So we'll see what happens between these two. The gimmick of the show, um, gimmick is a negative word. I shouldn't use that. Um, But anyway, um, one of the concepts in the show is that each of them has a neurosis. And um, that's literally the case because you actually see the neuroses on stage. One is called neurosis. That's for the guy. And one is actually called Neurosalina, and that's for uh, the woman. So uh, here we are, and I will say at intermission, uh, a person near me said, um, gee, I don't understand what's going on, why this guy is interested in this woman when he's clearly gay because he's got that guy who was always with him. No, that's not a real person. That's his neurosis. And um, frankly, I think it's very clear that this is not a real person because sometimes when they're talking to other people, the person spoken to does not see the other person. So I think it's clear. But I started thinking, you know, it might be a good idea if indeed um, each of the people, I'm talking about Abby and Frank, have their neuroses in the exact same costume that they're wearing. I think that would be a very good idea in case other people did get confused. But frankly, again, I think the authors did a good job of keeping that um, quite clear. So that's what it's about. You know, uh, the the crazy things in our lives that keep us from being happy, that uh, prevent us from doing what we need to do. The show does take a wrong turn in the second act, and this involves Frank's parents. Now, they are nicely played by Susan J. Jacks, um, who I've admired long and hard um, ever since I saw her at an ASCAP workshop doing songs from a musical that should have happened. Jill Levine is alive and dead in New York. Is that what it's called? Uh, based on that famous um, Gail Perrant novel. Anyway, um, she's a terrific performer, and so is Joel Blum, playing the father. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. But you see, here's the point. What happens is, is that Frank takes home Abby to meet his parents, and they're his parents. So... Um, they don't get along. Well, mostly the the mother, uh, who has a big problem with uh, her son getting involved with anybody, um, doesn't get along with her. And Abby tries very hard at the beginning, hoping to be nice and be pleasant, but eventually she cannot do it. And um, and so as a result, uh, she storms out of there, and it looks like the relationship is over. You see, now the problem is our whole musical up to this point has been dealing with the fact that our neuroses do us in that we have to get rid of our neuroses. Well, the point is, there's nothing neurotic about what's going on when they meet the parents, when she meets the parents. That's the problem with it. I mean, it it should center on the fact that we have to get rid of our neuroses. And in fact, at the end of the show, um, it even goes more off the rails because what happens is we get the impression that living with your, your neuroses is a very good thing rather than beating them. There's a moment where we think, 
that indeed um, Frank is going to get rid of his neurosis, but he doesn't. No, he doesn't at all. And I do think that's a mistake as well. So um, for the first act, I was really with it. And um, I will tell you that while the music is very nice and very amiable um, and uh, nothing wrong with it at all, it's by Ben Green. The lyrics by Greg Edwards are really um, top notch, uh, very, very smart. Very smart, very intelligent, looking for uh, good perception. Alan Rice's book is pretty good. A couple of tasteless moments, I'm sorry to say, that made the audience go, ooh, you know, and I understand why. Um, directed very broadly by Andy Sandberg, and that is his policy. That's the way he directs. He um, he really goes for it, so to speak. And um, so uh, the characterizations um, are not remotely subtle. And um, I'd be very interested to talk to the writers and ask if this is the um, production they had in mind. It might very well have been. But um, uh, if you like um, broad uh, staging, you're going to really have a good time with Andy Sandberg. And he did The Last Smoker in America some years ago. Same type of staging. This is what he likes, and this is what he puts on stage. So, so um, um, you know, well, those two and a half stars out of four musicals, um, there have been so many of those, I'll grant you, that you might not want to get down to DR2 on 15th Street and see it. But uh, there is there is worth here. And the irony is that so many times people tell people to, to write shows with as few characters as possible. And here they've done. They've added two characters that I think are really unnecessary. I think centering on um, the guy and the girl is what really should be happening here. All right. So that is Neurosis uh, down at the DR2, the Darrow Roth 2 on 15th Street. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I uh, finally caught up with Straight White Men at the Hayes Theater um, this week, and uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It wasn't my favorite thing, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and, and I, I keep on thinking about why that was not my favorite thing when other reviewers really liked it. Uh-huh. Um, no, well, not the two of you. The two, the two oh no no no! That's a, no, my my reaction is that you, you you shouldn't feel that way. I mean, you feel what you feel. I mean, you yeah, know, so that, that that's true. But I, you know, especially with a title like Straight White Men, uh, perhaps I'm not seeing the forest through the trees. Um, it's a, but, lo- a loaded title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, but I did go back and I looked at the uh, the Lortel archives, the Internet Off Broadway database, and looked at the public theaters production of it, uh, at least just uh, the statistics on it. And because uh, Michael had Austin. brought up, what was that? With Austin Pendleton. Yeah. Uh, so I looked at it. And uh, a couple of things occurred to me. Michael brought up, uh, well, Michael asked, were the two other, the Ty Defoe and Kate Bourne's Persons in charge. Yeah, persons in charge. They were Uh not in the public theater's production. Ah. Uh, They were not in the public theater's production. And I thought a lot about why they were added and what they brought to this and how they tied into the production. And I felt like there was an attempt to do something that did not work or was not fleshed out enough or things like that. And the interesting thing was that, and both of you remind me, uh, the Ty Defoe and Kate Bornstein introduced themselves with their own real names at the top of the show. Uh, 
And so, well, there was an article uh, to cut to the chase. There was yeah. an, an article recently about how the it was planned from the beginning that the that section would be developed with input from those two people, yeah. as to so it's not it's not improvised, but it's uh, it's kind of workshopped, and so it's like oh maybe I can say this, maybe you can say that. Uh, but what, so, what did it have to do with the straight white the the script that existed before they entered the picture? And I, I'm I'm not sure of the leap between what those two characters added to the commentary of what was going on with the four characters on stage, because and, it was because of the setup of the set in which they were in like a, a huge large picture frame that said straight white mm-hmm. men. Yeah. It was almost as if you were at a. a a museum and the docents are saying, you know, introducing this to mm-hmm. you, like, you know, this is Triceratops and it ruled the earth from blah, 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 blah. That's what I got from it. They were standing yeah. outside the action. I'm not saying I think it was necessary either, but I'm sure that that was what the playwright intended. Very good, Michael. That's a very good interpretation, I, mean, I hmm. think. Yeah. Well, yeah. and largely because of that picture frame thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> so, uh, also, what I didn't expect to see at the Lortel Archives were production photos from the uh, production down at uh-huh. the Public Theater. Uh, and the production photos show a nearly identical set. Interesting. <laughs> so, but with two different designers for the Broadway production versus the public production. So I wonder how, you know, in talking about the recreation of Robin's choreographer, Agustin Mill's <laughs> choreography and things like that, doesn't the original uh, set designer uh, deserve, uh, David Evans Morris, doesn't he deserve some credit there in the Broadway production? Uh, I mean, it, it's nearly identical, uh, according it, to these photographs. And you're saying it's not, and someone else is credited? Yeah, the Broadway production is... Uh, uh, straight white men is scenic designed by Todd Rosenthal. Oh, hmm. so <laughs> uh, it it doesn't you know give any anyway. It's it's a it's a really minor point. I just thought it was curious. I I didn't expect to see production photos in the uh, the Lortel archives, which everybody should check out at iobdb.com. Yes. Uh, and so they can check out these things. And this uh, thing played at the public in November 2014 through December 2014. Um, you know, what has Army Hammer, Stephen Payne, uh, Ty Defoe, Paul uh, Schneider, all great. You know, I, I just wished I had seen them in something else that had a larger impact upon me. So there it is, Straight White Men, and it's uh, playing through September 9th. And if you don't, and if you're not sure what theater it's playing at, <laughs> just walk down the block and listen to for ear splitting music. <laughs> oh, and then you, yeah! I'm and so will... glad the two of you told us because uh, my wife and I we waited uh, outside of the haze until eight oh six, and you uh, heard it anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, we heard it. You know, clear as day. It was like uh, the days of walking by the the limelight. Um, you know, uh, the V bar. <laughs> yeah, the V bar, yeah. and you just heard incredibly loud music, um, perfectly clear from distances away. I, I I didn't I didn't understand. I didn't get it. All right. So uh, Michael, you went to see Mary Page Marlowe. So tell us about that at Second Stage. 
Yeah, I'm really late to this party, so I, I won't say much, but I did want to talk about it because I, I really enjoyed the play very, very much uh, by Tracy Letts. Um, I loved his August Osage County, uh, as so many other people did. and um, I. But then I was not uh, nearly as impressed by a play he wrote called Man from Nebraska, which was uh, done a couple of years back. Uh, so I was, you know, wondering if he's going to be the kind of playwright who could keep a, a level sustained, a, a sustained level of excellence. And um, I have to say, Mary Page Marlowe, though not sheer perfection, is a very, very um, clever and moving uh work about uh, a woman named Mary Page Marlowe, whom we follow uh, in short scenes uh, that go throughout uh, various stages of her life, um, but not chronologically. So uh, I believe the first time we see Mary, she is um, in late middle age. And, but then later on at, at various points in the play, we're going to see her at 19 at 12. Um, one actress plays her uh, at two ages, 27 and 36. Uh, um, uh, one actress plays her at 50 and then another actress plays her at 40 and 44. And I should have done it the other way, uh, made my, my life easier, but uh, let's do it again. Mary Page Marlowe, 59, 63, and 69 is Blair Brown. Mary Page Marlowe, 19 is Emma Gear. Mary Page Marlowe, 12 is Mia Sinclair Janess. Mary Page Marlowe, 27 and 36 is Tatiana Maslany. Mary Page Marlowe, at 50 is Kelly Overby, who I always love seeing on stage. And Mary Page Marlowe, 40 and 44, is Susan Porfar. And then uh, yeah, they're not the only people in the play. There are other um, characters played by David Aaron Baker, uh, Kelly Carter, uh, and uh, Nick Dillenberg, etc., etc. Um Oh, and Brian Kerwin is in this play. Uh, I hadn't seen him on stage in a while. Um, it's it's really um, I, we've seen plays before that that play with time in that way that shuffle scenes and have them presented not in chronological order. Uh, David Harris Plenty is one that uh, comes to mind, but there are but there are several others. Um, I think overall that um, Let's did a wonderful job here. Uh, in, in the writing, and it, uh, the show is directed by Lila Neugebauer, who helps greatly to keep the clarity of the storytelling and the shifts in the time. Um, there is one question I have about it. Now, uh, I'm sorry, have either of you guys seen it? Mm-hmm. I yeah. have. Uh, well, uh, not, I don't want to, I want to be careful. I don't want to give anything away. There is a tragedy that occurs, um, but I felt that it was never explicitly stated what happened. I mean, I know what happened, but I don't know how it happened. And I was wondering if that must have been purposeful on the part of the playwright or not. I have no answer. I thought that they explained it at the end of the show. I kept on wondering – I kept on trying to figure out the pieces in between. And I think they were explicit of what happened at the end of the show in one of the final scenes. Well, I think, yeah, I can't, I can't say much more, but someone uh, disappears and um, 
they go looking for the person, but I'm just, I don't think the denouement of what actually they found was mentioned, or I don't know, maybe I had a momentary lapse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 but uh, yeah, I should look at the script is what I should do. I, I think it's uh, very, very impressive the way that uh, Tracy Letts wrote it. It can't be, cannot be easy to write a play uh, that way just zooming around in time back and forth. And so, um, <laughs> well, uh, Peter, have you ever written a play that is out of uh, time <laughs> sequence? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just reacting to the fact that it's not easy to write a play no matter what happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. No, that's what I mean. I mean, on top of No matter of what it. happens. Yeah. I, I, frankly, my problem with Mary Page Marlowe um, had to do with the with Charles Willett, a marvelous general manager, a very smart guy about theater who died much too young in a boating accident. Uh, used to work for Alex Cohen and went to him and said, you got to do this play. And Alex said, I don't like it. And it turned out to be that championship season. But anyway, Charlie used to talk about uh, the moment of alignment that a play has. And that is um, when you say, oh, I got it. I know what this is all about. Like, for example, in The Odd Couple, when uh, Oscar comes yeah. home late for dinner and um, and Felix says, and you couldn't have called. And that's when you realize that, you know, this is a marriage. That's what's going on here. And um, that's the moment of alignment when you say, ah, ah, I really get it. And I didn't feel Mary Page Marlowe had that moment of alignment. Um, I, I was waiting for it uh, where it all came together. And um, I'm afraid it didn't. Um, it can be as small a thing as a lifesaver. I mean, the type you buy the candy, uh, as in the play Defying Gravity, which has nothing to do with Wicked. Uh, but uh, it, it can be a small thing, but it can be a big thing. But there's got to be a moment when you say, ah, 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 I get it. And frankly, I didn't with Mary Page Marlowe, so I'm not much help on this. It well, may I've... very well be there. It may very well be there, and I missed it. No, but I, but I mean, it's possible we're talking about the same thing. I, I thought, you know, this horrible tragedy is hinted at. Then we get a little bit of information about it. But we, but unless I fell asleep momentarily, we're, we're not told exactly what happened. Uh, and so maybe that's what you feel is lacking. Could very maybe well. that, that could have been that moment that you were looking for. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, I think it behooves both of us to go back and read the script. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm willing to do that. All right. So that's uh, Mary Page Marlowe, and this also is closing August 19th, so you have about a week left to go check it out if you'd like. Uh, finally, this morning, um, Peter, you got over to the Sheen Center to see Pushkin, A Life Played Out, and tell us about that. Well, uh, this is about Alexander Pushkin, who's perhaps famous for um, Boris Godunov, though, to be frank, um, he didn't do the opera. He did the play in which Mogosovsky based his opera. But uh, he was he was a poet in Russia way back when, and uh, Jonathan Leaf thought that his um, life was worth examining. And he's quite right, quite right indeed, because we do um, – it's a fabulous mixture of – Um, personal life and professional life. And believe me, both of them intersect. As it turns out, he was a tremendous gambler and that got him into terrific trouble. Um, He certainly was interested in adultery, which got him into trouble. But the most thing, uh, most important thing is the fact that he was running up against the law. And uh, believe me, um, the law in Russia at that time, um, the Tsar Nicholas was was a tough guy. And um, so he he really did battle with him. So uh, it's, it's, it's a 
wonderful production um, directed by Christopher McElrone. Um, beautifully done. At, and, and what's so amazing is we're in the second space of the Sheen Theater. Uh, we have to go down a flight of stairs um, and a, a small theater. It's done in uh, what is called the cockpit style, which means like think of a football game where there are people on each side. Not my favorite type of staging. And in fact, there's a moment where a woman winks at us to show that she's kidding. And I'm sorry to say the other half of the audience didn't see it. Um, so I wish I, I wish it had been done the proscenium uh, stage. I think it would have been uh, as effective there. But nevertheless, um, a, a wonderful, wonderful production. Um, and it, it takes its own pace. And you really get into that pace. Um, it sets the tone for you and you go along with it. That's what's really so nice about this production. But um, also wonderfully done. And Ian Lasseter, I don't think anybody could be better as Pushkin, who is so enigmatic in the way that he plays it. I mean, you just have no idea what he's thinking. And even when he comes out with things that he's saying, you're not sure that he's telling us the truth or anybody the truth. At times, we, we obviously, as the play goes on, we know when he's lying. And there's plenty of it. But um, it, it is very effective in that way. And also, how wonderful, again, to see Lou Liberatore, um, a, a fine, fine actor who uh, we don't see enough of. And he plays a count in the show, and he surely makes a count. So uh, this play is, um, this production has gone through some problems because, unfortunately, uh, an actress had a real problem with her leg and performances had to be canceled, which is such a sad thing because I would have liked more audience to see Pushkin. And I hope that they will as time goes on. All right, so that's Pishkin, and that is playing uh, through August 25th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I'd like to remind you that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the uh, iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Apple Podcasts plays us, Stitcher app plays us, the Google Play app plays us. Anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at the show notes as well at Broader Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, tell us about last week's trivia. Well, my question was, a performer who hasn't been on Broadway for decades is about to return to the same theater where he or she, I kept it vague, first received um, received the first and only reviewed Broadway appearance that he or she got as a performer. What's the name of the person I'm looking for? And it was Elaine May, who starred at the Golden Theater in 1960 as half of an evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And she's about to return there now in the Waverly Gallery. And why, you may ask, did I specify her first and only reviewed Broadway appearance that he or she got as a performer? Because Elaine May did appear in a Broadway play called The Office, directed by Jerome Robbins, by the way, five years later, but it closed during previews, so she didn't get a review. And she's written three other plays that have reached Broadway, but An Evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May still remains, as of this day, the only time she's been reviewed as a performer. <clears throat> the first to get it was Michael Portantier, but he had an advantage because um, <laughs> as soon as the show was over, he asked me, is this Elaine May? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, for people who didn't have such an advantage, we credit Carrie Winslow for being the first tuner in to get it, followed by Chris McGeehan, Alyssa Ma, and Ron Fassler. So this week's question, the melody that begins the overture of a 1940s smash hit musical, smash hit, is also heard in the first act finale 
of a 1960s smash hit musical. What's the piece of music and the name of both musicals? Um, James, let me say James, let me say one other thing, um, and that is that um, these trivia questions have uh, really uh, been reasonably popular with a, a number of our listeners. And in case uh, you've missed them, uh, missed one or two or, or plenty, or you're just tuning in for the first time, I will tell you that my column at MasterworksBroadway.com on Tuesday will uh, simply be devoted to these questions, questions that I've asked over the years. Hmm, and, that's good. Uh, so if you want to see them again, or see them for the first time, www.masterworksbroadway, one word, dot com. And uh, scroll down a little and you'll see a picture of me and uh, you'll see the column. That's on Tuesday. And the following Tuesday, Tuesday, I'll give the answers. All right. So we have our little uh, go-to cheat sheet there. (laughs) 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 And uh, so if you have an answer to this, uh, email us at TriviaBroaderRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broader Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.